The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, offer no resistance to one who is evil. When someone strikes you on your cheek, turn the other one as well. If anyone wants to go to law with you over your tunic, a hand over your cloak as well. Should anyone press you into service for one mile, go for two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn your back on one who wants to borrow. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. In our collect, our opening prayer for today's Mass, we asked for a very particular and very important grace. And it is a good skill, and especially as we move forward into the season of Lent, pay attention to the words of the opening prayer for Mass, because it's often the key to understand spiritually what is the movement that our celebration of the liturgy is seeking to deepen or to root within us as we celebrate it. And today's prayer has a particular note about it. Uh, we turn to the Lord and we ask for the grace that through always contemplating heavenly things, we might be pleasing to him in word and in deed. And the beauty of the prayer is how it identifies for us the source of those actions and words that are truly pleasing to God. They come in no small measure from what we fix our minds on. And if we're honest with ourselves, that could be a scary reality to deal with because on any given day, my mind could go to a pretty dark place. On any given day, my mind can fill itself with empty and trivial things. And so note, and then I wonder why my life is off course, while what I do makes me feel guilty rather than good. But I am focusing my thoughts, my spirits, 
on that which isn't good in the first place. And then I wonder why my actions have a certain lack of goodness about them, while my words have a certain cutting sharpness about them. But when my mind is focused on my resentments, my anger, my disappointments, when my mind is simply distracted all the time, small wonder my goodness is unfocused. Small wonder my words are disjointed. And so note that great grace, that grace that if we learn to turn our minds with some regularity to the things of heaven, to the things of the gospel, to that which is truly good, that turning of our minds with regularity to these things is going to bear fruit in how we act, how we speak, and how we live. This is why daily prayer is so very important, and it's why we do what we do here every single Sunday. Because we come out of the world to this place, or to a place like this one, so that we focus not on worldly matters, but on the things of heaven, on the things of God. And why? This discipline of regularly doing this, regularly moving toward and orienting ourselves toward that which is truly good in and of itself can begin shaping how we live and think and act. Note how important that is. And in doing so, the church reminds us, pay attention to where you're going, to where your mind wants to go, to where your heart habitually goes, because your life will follow the eye of your heart. Your life is going to follow the eye of your mind. It's going to pull you in that direction. And so we want to learn to fix the eye of the heart and the eye of the mind in the right direction, upon the right goal. And doing so, little by little, our lives will begin to move along that right way. It's a marvelously simple concept, but difficult to live and execute. But very important as well for the challenging and significant words that our scriptures place before us today. In our first reading, we get that commandment that the Lord speaks through Moses, that the human heart wants to say, no thank you, that's just impossible. Be holy, just as the Lord your God is holy. And on hearing that, the sinful, wounded, fragile, and constant human heart wants to say, who, me? I think you've got the wrong guy. Be holy, just as the Lord your God is holy. And yet those words, which we hear at the beginning of our first reading, are bookended by that challenging direct commandment from the lips of Jesus Christ at the end of our gospel today. Be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And again, we pause, and the natural reaction is to say, Lord, you are asking far too much from me. Lord, who can do that? Lord, how is that even possible, and what is it in the first place? 
But the beautiful thing about the cluster of readings we have today is they also show us what that holiness and that perfection mean. And so today, the church puts before us the nature of the Lord's holiness, the nature of his perfection, so that in turning our minds to it, our words, our actions, and our thoughts might begin to conform themselves to it. And the issue here is, first we recognize that God is different from us. That the Lord is not merely just another one of us. There's something about him that goes beyond us, is different from us, is distinct from us. You can let him run, that's cool. I wish I had that kind of energy. <laughs> but as, as long as he's safe, he's not a distraction. Um, the Lord is different. And then the question is, but how is the Lord different from us? What is it about him that makes us different? Because what Jesus is saying is, that's the difference that needs to be recognizably present in your life and in my life. The Lord is saying to us, you must be different because of your relation from me, with me from everybody else. That's a challenging statement. In other words, however, our Christian faith must make a visible, recognizable difference. The Christian should live differently, should speak differently, should act differently, should think differently from those who are not Christians. Or one has to say, what difference does it make in the first place? And notice how Jesus beats that drum. And he says, if you only love those who love you, what's so wonderful about that, if we're honest? Doesn't everybody do that? You don't need a special relationship with me to do that. If you are only going to greet the people you like, well, can't anybody do that? Is that really a sign that my grace is at work in you? In other words, there is no recognizable difference between you and one who doesn't believe in me. And so there must be a proof, there must be evidence that your life and mine are somehow one, somehow, somehow connected. This is the issue of the holiness and the perfection that is placed before us in, our, in the reading. What is it not just that sets God apart from man, but what is it that sets the one who truly belongs to God apart from the one who doesn't? And surprisingly, and perhaps disappointingly for many of us, it's not necessarily a list of principles we believe, but a certain reality of living that is the distinction. This is the important thing. There is something about the way the Christian lives that must be different, and that difference is reducible to one specific thing. And on the one hand, we say, that's great, that's nice and easy. 
that's nice and simple. It's good to have one thing I need to work on. The problem is the thing. Love your enemies. And again we say, does it have to be that thing? <laughs> Love your enemies. From the very beginning, this has been the teaching that sets Christianity apart from all other traditions, be they religious, be they philosophical. It is this notion. Love your enemy. What a remarkably powerful statement that is. Because we live in a world, it's no secret, that's really angry, don't we? Everything seems to be overheated. Everything seems to be agitated. We see a certain proud glorification in the notion that I have a status as a victim and therefore have a right to be outraged. And the amazing thing is everybody claims victimhood. And with claiming victimhood claims the right to lash out and to hit back. And this honestly is nothing new. It's just new in the way it expresses itself. And so know what the Lord is saying. But that can't be you. You who follow me can't just be another resentful, angry, bitter, vengeful person. And all of a sudden we give ourselves pause because on any given day, that can be exactly who we are. And so note what he says. You've heard it taught. When somebody hits you, oh, hit him back. When someone disrespects you, you don't have to respect them. When someone disappoints you, turn your back. But I say to you, don't do that. And this is why St. Paul writes about the wisdom of God being so very different from the wisdom of the world. Because what makes sense to our worldly, sin-fallen hearts is exactly that. If you aren't good to me, then I will not be good to you. If you are unkind to me, then you have given me permission to be equally unkind to you. And what happens? What I really claim is the freedom to reduce myself to the level that is less than I could be. That's what Jesus is saying. It's so easy for the believer's heart to reduce itself to the pettiness, the viciousness, the selfishness of the world around us, to give ourselves permission to be less than we can be, less than we could be, less than we should be, less than who we really are. And when we do that and the world looks at us, what does it see? It sees itself and nothing more. But it's not challenged to be better. The point of the Lord's difficult teaching is that when we don't reduce ourselves, when we can disagree without anger and viciousness, when we can respond with a certain level of patience and compassion, even when we are being wounded. That is something that the world struggles to understand. But it also gets the world's attention. It sets the believer apart. It marks him or her as someone different.
who is conscious of living at another level, above these things, above the mud where so many are so readily pulled down and where all too many live. Note how important that is. Of all the things the Lord can identify in both the Old Testament and the New, what do we hear? What sets God apart from man is God is not petty and resentful. That God is not interested in holding on to a list of grievances against those who have given him offense. That the Lord is capable even as he condemns sin, of still making sure that the sinner has what he needs to live. How different from us who want to cut off our love, cut off our goodness from those we believe have wronged us. That marvelous statement, the Lord makes the sun to rise on the just who please him, and on the unjust who displease him, because it's the right thing to do. Not because they've earned it, but because it's right, and because it's good. Because if God was about giving us what we deserve, we'd all be in trouble. Note how wonderful this is. God makes the rain to fall on the good and on those who are wicked not because anybody's earned it or anybody deserves it, but because they all equally need it and because it's right. Note that marvelous impartiality on the one hand on the part of God, even as he calls us to a very particular way of living. And the Lord says, this is the way it must be with you. What a challenging but so important teaching this is. Because it's an easy thing to be an angry Christian. It is an easy thing to be a bitter and self-righteous culture warrior. That's not hard. What's difficult is in this world where there are so many threats to goodness, where there are so many things that disturb us, to live in a way that walks above the noise and doesn't surrender to. That's what real witness is. And we have these words given to us on the part of that one who shows us the face of divine perfection, Jesus Christ. In just a few minutes on this altar, he's going to be here. And let's be honest, we don't know the states of one another's hearts. And we're going to come forward and receive him, aren't we? And note, He'll give himself equally to all of us in our different degrees of imperfection. Not giving more to one and less to another, but simply giving himself fully and completely. And I may have offended him this week, but he's still going to give himself to me. Note how wonderful this is. He's as good as his word. He's as good as his word because... As we move into the holy season that begins this Wednesday with the receiving of ashes on our foreheads, we recall the mystery of the Lord on his cross. That Lord who, when he is nailed to his cross, and think about this, 
When you are hurt, when you are wounded, what is the first thing you think, feel, or say? It's probably not repeatable in polite company. And the Lord, being nailed to his cross, even as the nails pierce his hands, the first thing he says is the word of perfection. Father, forgive them. He prays for the one who hurts him. He doesn't ask for vengeance. He doesn't ask for relief. He says, forgive him. He doesn't know what he does. The perfect compassion of Jesus Christ extends even to the one who is wounding him in that terrible moment. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is my way. This is our way. And on any given day, we'll fall short of it. But what a great way to aspire to. Because on any given day, we can also step a little closer to that. On any given day, we can reach forward just a little more toward that great grace. And the Lord says, this is what sets me apart from the false saviors of the world. And this is what sets those who follow me apart from everybody else. A goodness that goes beyond the ordinary. So one final note. This idea of loving and praying for our enemies. Jesus is not speaking symbolically. He's taking it very seriously. On a practical level, one good way to do that is to recognize a trap we often fall into when we try and do those things. And oftentimes, if I do pray for somebody who has wounded me, I tend to pray in a judgmental way. This person is bad in some way. Fix him or her and make it better. That's not necessarily a horrible prayer to pray, but note how it limits us. It, takes, it can easily be colored by a certain bitterness, a certain resentfulness, and we're effectively limiting God. Change this person in the way I want you to change them. Another way to do that is to think of that person who's wounded you and to pray this way. Lord, I don't know what's going on there, but give this person the grace he or she most needs right now. And that might be the grace to make that change, or it might be some other one. But note how that flows out of a concern for the well-being of the other, as opposed to the fixing of what is wrong that I feel. That's not a bad thing to want, but the Lord is saying, let's step beyond that. And let's actually be concerned for all of those others, including those who have not been kind to us, who have not been good to us. Because that is my way, Jesus says. And so it must be your way too. It is a difficult way. It is a beautiful way, however. And it is the way which most clearly distinguishes the faithful Christian from everybody else. And so it is our way. Amen.